This is a podcast from Minute Media. Javi Baez is now a Tiger, and he came here because Detroit is a nice area. But when he turned on the radio for Detroit Tigers coverage, all he heard was a know-it-all telling him Al Avila stinks. Now that the Tigers are all in, you deserve the best Detroit Tigers coverage on the planet. And two Southeast Michiganders are going to give it to you. Chris, the pitching guru, Brown, and Rogelio Castillo. This cack of ball, man. Second deck. Featuring regular appearances from the Uber. It's time for the Tigers Radio Podcast, the most complete coverage of Detroit Tigers baseball from the high-flying Tigers of Lakeland to the show. All right, courtesy that intro, the new intro for next year, I had to play it because I thought it was funny. There's two different versions there, but that's the full version done by friend of the show, who I still haven't met yet. (laughs) Mike is over... I've met, I've talked to Mike, Michael over at Palazzo Podcast. He's been and, on our show a couple times, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mike. Mike never met him in person. I still haven't met him in person, but he's a fantastic guy, high energy guy. Oh, we got high a lot energy of time. Is understatement. <laughs> yeah. No, he's he's a good dude, and he does a lot of fancy baseball, fancy football. He knows his stuff. So, honestly, if you get a chance, if you have not followed him already, he is worth the follow. And I'm blanking out on what he's at to follow, but be, you know, it's because it's. Lockout season, guys. We're in the middle of a, a crisis, if you will, because there's no baseball. Oh, yeah, MJ Glover at Twitter. So find yeah. him there. And he's it, it's Govier here, isn't it? Yeah, Mike. Yeah, Govier. Govier. Yep. And uh, his, he's been able to see his lovely girlfriend and he spreads his love on Twitter and pretty, right. pretty happy about that. So anyway, welcome into Tigers radio podcast here at MotorCityBangles.com. I'm Rahila Castillo. My is Chris Brown and Uper. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, Our Heart Media, and Stitchler. And I wanted to plug a couple things. First and foremost, go to the Tiger Mining Report shop. We had a couple orders, so thank you, whoever it was. And you have free shipping with the promo code WINTER21, number 21. And get your order before Christmas. So if you want a minor league shirt, got them half off at 15 bucks. I think the hoodie for 30 And we're trying, we're still finding a location or, excuse me, a place to donate the money. All the money, again, we're probably perhaps in the Oxford GoFundMe's, but there's a lot of those ones out there we have to make sure of. I don't know. What are you, we're going to put the money, but we're going to donate it back because. I I have an idea, okay. uh, if I can, and this is a strange thing where I don't often get personal on these podcasts, but something random happened to me yesterday. My wife, Tara, just happened to be on Facebook. I haven't been on Facebook in like three, four years now. Smart man. And she, she saw a familiar name pop up in a post about ALS. And it was my ex-girlfriend's sister. Now, this is weird. I dated a girl from like 2002 to almost 2010, like a long-term relationship. We broke up, things didn't work out, but I was a big part of that family for almost a decade. And then when things fall apart, you disassociate yourself with everybody. But I used to know her sister quite well. I painted her garage. We used to hang out fairly frequently. And I went and looked online. And yeah, she was diagnosed with ALS in 2018. Oh. And she cannot do anything anymore. She, she 
but she, it's remarkable. It's inspirational. She was able to do a question and answer session. She's got an optical camera, basically. It follows her eyes because she can't move any part of her body anymore. So yeah, it just hit close to home to me. Like, wow, this is somebody I know. And, and she, I, I, I don't know how much longer she's got to live. Unfortunately, I, I was talking to Tara about Lou Gehrig died when he was 37. He was diagnosed, what, a year and a half before that? This ALS just destroys people very quickly. And so I thought, hey, if we get a chance to donate some money, maybe to an ALS thing, even not to make it all about me or my past or whatever, but it was like, that's probably a worthy cause for something that's pretty awful. So if we want to do that, we can. Just uh, throwing it out there. Absolutely. I, I would be down for that. Colon cancer that's affected myself I, there's or my, my family there's so many different things dementia but yeah. honestly if we want to get to a certain threshold where we can donate to two and this would be nice that possibly be nice to have we don't really stick our hands out there for anything we have the patreon link right here if you're watching us on youtube but if you want to that's just a separate thing to keep out the bonus contents such as for example the eerie video that i've been working on for the last month I, i'll be honest folks I've been, it's been quite the last few months and I just burned out and all that's been a, a very busy time of year. So I just started a new day job and but still no excuse. We still have the Erie video to finish. We have Toledo. We have a lot to do this month and the lockout comes at a time where quite frankly, people are looking for content and it's, it feels like we're going to have a, we're going to have, a, it's going to be a while. I just have that inkling and mm-hmm. especially with just the fact that the Tigers minor league rule five picks got more coverage than they ever have ever. Oh God. Yeah. yeah. And JJ Cooper was drafting out or <laughs> tweeting out the picks live. So ladies and gentlemen, this is what we have to resort to. And it, we probably will probably have one more show at the end of the year. And then we'll probably come back in January and reevaluate things and see how this last year we did this, Chris, we did the, we picked a team. We talked about the season pitchers, the, the catcher, excuse me, the pitchers, the hitters, and that, I don't know how that worked out. We never really got a lot of feedback, but we're getting more feedback now. So if you like this idea after we do this tonight, just please let us know if there's a team you want us to review. We're, and not, and not, it's not going to be just the Tigers. Mm-hmm. We did the A's last year. We did the 86 Mets because that's a, a team that's always been intriguing to both yeah. of us. And then, of course, they came out with the 20 or for the, the 30 for 30. That was really well done. That was what? Three days worth of, yeah, we did, and let's see, we did the two thousand one D backs, I think. Yeah, it's just fun going, and I think we did the two thousand three Marlins too, right? Oh, that'd be I cool. Remember. I don't remember. I thought we I did, we but did. Maybe, maybe we didn't. It's any any kind of interesting teams from way back are are fun. Yeah, and by the way, speaking of way back though, center regards to former Tiger bullpen pitcher Richie Lewis, who passed away today. Tony Paul tweeted mm-hmm. out earlier. And if anyone remembers that 1996 squad, he actually was one of the better pitchers at the ERA of 4.10. But I always remember Richie Lewis had a curly hair mullet thing going on in the back of him, and he had a wad. He was out of Louisiana State, and or, excuse me, LSU, I should say, out of Louisiana State. But either way, he was out of LSU, and for a while, I think he was with the Tigers, maybe one season, two seasons, I can't remember. But either way, he passed away today, as uh, Tony Paul reported, but there's, like I said, the whole news cycle lately has been depressing. But, yeah, we'll get to the 67 Tigers. But just take a look around baseball. Other than that, gentlemen, what is going on that I may have missed in the last couple of weeks? If there's anything that stands out to you guys? That's interesting. It seems like 
a lot of the writers, national writers, are adopting some sort of sense of soft optimism that this won't be a disaster. I don't know if, if you guys are getting that impression. And I don't know, is that something they're getting fed by the union or are they getting fed that by ownership? Hard to say. I did see something in the USA Today about that. I think, Uper, there was an article today that posted that baseballs revive after this. And they will. And they will, but I think I'll get to that in a second. But, Chris, what were you going to say? Oh, yeah, nothing. I mean, I I was one thing I'm I'm trying to or trying to keep an eye on is there there are certain writers who you can count on to be more in step with the owners than than with the players. You mean carry the water? Yeah, if you will. And I was curious about there was that one kind of going around that, that that talk about Carlos Correa and his back issues and teams are wary and stuff like that. And it just felt very I don't know, it felt very much like something or like doing some it. Yeah, doing work for some owners. Yeah. Which I don't know. I don't feel crazy about. Everybody knew that Carlos Correa has some injury issues. He hasn't played many full seasons, but I don't know. It just felt it felt wrong to me. And I, I don't know. There's been a little bit of that. I read Ken Rosenthal had a nice uh, article for the Athletic where he was like, "This is how I would fix the CBA," and, and it does. It doesn't. It really doesn't. For as much as we've talked about this and foreshadowed this for the last two years or so, it really doesn't feel like they're super far apart. If they just it, it, the problem right now is it seems like uh, the owners haven't offered anything serious, like anything that players should take serious. What was the one with the, the salary? Basically, the luxury tax has dropped down to 180 million, which uh, is yeah. what 40 million less than right now. It just feels like they're not being serious about it. Like they're just putting stuff out there. It reminds me of you remember at the beginning of the 2020 season with all the discussions about how to play and how many games to play and how much to pay the players during COVID it became very obvious that the owners were not going to play games or we're not going to allow a, a certain number of games unless they could, you know, be sure they were going to make money, which ended up being what 60 games. So it feels a lot like that. Like they're just not being terribly serious about this. And the players are, I, I can't, the players have put forth some proposals uh, that the owners rejected offhand. And I just, I don't know, it just feels like they're deliberately pushing this out to try to maybe get it all done before the deadline in hopes that they can save some money. I don't know. That's my general sense. You know, the, the, one of the things I wrote about, I wrote a piece today about how the lockout may continue to alienate young, younger fans because of some of the data that's coming out that has come out recently. And, you know, the Pew Research Center is really, does a really good job of capturing that millennial. They've, they're the ones that kind of define what is a millennial, what is Gen Z, what is Gen X, and those things. But it's it's certain to me, it looks like to me that, Baseball is following some sort of they're not really looking at the research. They're not really paying attention. They're just running like it's like with ADHD, just oh, oh, oh and just following some sort of trend that makes no sense. And there was so much interesting data about how Gen Z watches sports. And and it was surprisingly though, so Gen Z is considered people born from nineteen ninety-six to I think it's I'm drawing a blank right now. At the moment, it's let's see here. I have it. Okay, so Gen Zers are anybody from ages seven to twenty-two. Millennials are twenty-three to thirty-eight. Gen X is thirty-nine to fifty-four. So I think you and I are Gen X, Chris. I, 
Oh, oh as of in 2019. Yeah. So I think we're we in do. that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I've always read that I was in a cusp generation. I've yeah, heard it called uh, Generation Catalano, named after Jordan Catalano, I guess, from my life. I've heard it called the Jimmy Carter generation because we were born. I was at least born in like the last few months of Jimmy Carter's presidency. They're talking about people late 70s, early 80s. So I, I don't know. I've... I don't know what it is that defines certain generations. I think Generation X was the like disaffected latchkey kid, divorced parents. I'm never going to amount to anything, so why care generation? And I view millennials as almost like uh, baby boomers who just felt like they could do everything in the world. And then some of them did for some reason, somehow. They made billions of dollars like with social networking apps. Yeah. And I'm just somewhere in the middle. I feel more like the American Pie generation. <laughs> yeah and that's where it gets all the those classifications get muddy because i relate to the gen x generation because there's a lot of characteristics that are similar but then the when they tell you hey you're going to college everything's gonna be great you're gonna get to do whatever you want to do because you put your mind to it no if, if they would said hey listen if you know a bunch of people at certain positions that will help it would have saved me a lot of time and perhaps through low money. I don't know. But either way, the, the the reason why this ties in the baseball is the fact that if, okay, let's say, for example, you let me ask you a question. Is your yeah. daughter that's going to college have any type of relationship with baseball whatsoever? Most, she does follow the Tigers. Okay. She could name at any given point in a season at least – I'm going to say seven to eight players, okay, which isn't bad. She, through talking to me, if nothing else, she'll know what position and where they are in the standings. Okay. And, and she likes to go to games with me. Okay. So that's not too bad. Okay. So, Chris, in terms of your stepson, mm-hmm. Ryan. Yeah. Does Ryan, give a, does Ryan care about baseball? No, I don't think so. He, he about... Seven, eight years ago, I coached him in Little League, and he showed some interest. Even he wrote a letter to Justin Verlander and got like a nice form letter back and stuff like that. But but yeah, he was never, I view it as his personality, really. He's He was never a big sports kid. He's more into like cars and random YouTube videos and stuff like that. It's it's not one of those situations where I feel like, oh, we lost Ryan to the NBA or the NFL. We just <laughs> He just doesn't particularly care about sports, and neither does his dad. So it's, and neither does my dad. It's he's one of the just yeah, a non sports guy. So for myself, my son is not interested in sports. We I coached his team for one year and he was he went from the bench to the catch. He started uh, then he started hitting. He was a catcher. He started once he figured out catcher, which made me happy because I used to be a catcher too in addition to playing the outfield. Then after that, he played soccer, but that, that's it. And he doesn't really care about sports whatsoever. And so anybody who's listening right now or listening on live right now on YouTube, if you want to throw a question, throw that out there. If you have any children, are they interested in baseball? The reason why I mentioned this is because as a parent, I, and my father was in more in the boxing, but we have a cousin in Cuba who played for in the late seventies with Barbario, the former tiger from the 1984 team. So ba- some sort of sports ran in my dad's family. My dad was more of a motorcycle racer, which I did not know until recently. <laughs> he wow. raced motorcycles. He was like a champion in the city of Havana. There's pictures that I posted on Twitter before of him just cleaning house. He had a good team. 
no, I had no idea that even that side existed. Wow. My brother, my, my two brothers and I were always in the sports. We would trade cards and all that stuff. The reason why it's important to mention this is that my dad got me going to sports by reading the paper every morning. I got the Detroit news when I was seven years old. And if you're going to alienate, if you're going to piss off, let's say a, a Gen Xer or older fan again with another strike, like they might have a, they more than likely they have a child in a Gen Z generation. They're going to tell their kid, don't bother with it because your parents influence whatever you're going to do, or they encourage whatever you, your likes are. And it's a simple little thing because some of those guys, some of those people have seen three or four strikes. They've seen the 1994 one, the 1981 one. Go ahead, Chris. What were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say for, I will say I basically stopped caring about baseball in the 90s for a handful of years. Part of it was the strike. Part of it was me just being a teenager and having other right. stuff I cared about. And I was a huge baseball fan from like the age of 7 to 11 or 12. You know, collected baseball cards, watched every game, all that stuff, and it just went away. And then I, I do think I got vaguely interested in the home run chase. And then the opening of Comerica Park, I ended up going to 30 games that year because it was like, hey, this is cool, and, and followed it. But then, yeah, 2006 is what really... I think I got into fantasy baseball too. That got me into the sport in general, but 2006 is what really brought me back to the Tigers. Cause it was like this incredibly fun team that just kept coming back and winning and winning. And I think the, the kind of localized nature of baseball, I, I, I think the idea that baseball is ever going to be this big national sport is, is probably outdated just the way it is. It's just like a series of satellite things and hardcore baseball fans will follow everything, but I don't think it's going to capture the national attention. You could argue Shohei Otani did this year, but it's going to take something like that to really put baseball on the national map. But I think teams, if they're having success and the community gets excited, that there will always be some level of support in, in fandom and baseball. Now, it's hard to do that when you're on strike, that's for sure. But I, I or not strike, I'm sorry, when you're locked out, when there's labor issues, the players are not striking. They've been kicked out by the owners. But I, I will say this, you know, my other son, Harrison, he's almost eight. He's second grade. He's got a handful of friends who are way into baseball at seven. And one of whom is uh, a left-handed pitcher. And he even went to, he went to a three hour clinic a couple of weeks ago, hosted by Jarrell Cotton, wow. former uh, MLB nice. pitcher. Yeah. And they were working these seven-year-olds, they were working on like pitchers fielding practice for 60 minutes. So there's still, there's still support in, in a fandom out there. It's just, it, it's, I, I, it is I, dangerous I, when you're not playing. Yeah. <laughs> People will find other things to do. And esports is a big thing. Oh, yes. I think that your timeline, though, is pretty typical, actually, of kids who are really in fans between ages 6 and 12 who just mm -hmm. devour everything because they become latched onto it. And they move away from it as teenagers. And somewhere in adulthood, they come back to it. And, heck, that's the, that's what the field of dreams is all about. <laughs> I think it's pretty common. I think the big thing that saves baseball often is just the fact that if you're a family of four, you need stuff to do in the summer. And a couple <laughs> nights at the ballpark fills that role. And I think that's always going to fill that role. There's not a lot of competition. If you're anywhere near a ball club that you can go see a couple games, I think it really is that simple. People want to do stuff. <laughs> you know, and no, and Uper, I, I agree with you, but I think the, what this lockout is doing right now Everybody, you saw what what happened this week when the Lions won their first game. It was like the champ. It was like a like they won the Super Bowl, but football yeah. still remained king. But there's, for example, I think this was in our 
Discord channel, which, by the way, you, I'll put the link in there. Thanks for everybody who did sign up after I put the link in there. So appreciate it. But I think it was Steve and there's a couple other people on there who talk about the new Halo game that's coming out. And then there's another Battlefield game. So mm-hmm. it, there's no talk about, hey, the Tigers by the name of Elvis. We put that in our Slack channel, or Youper did. And mm-hmm. it was just like a pin drop. But <laughs> <laughs> but there's we all three of us here. And even Jake, who, by the way, shout out to Jake, who is down in Atlanta with a uh, friend of the show, James Shipman, and beer kind of Frank, mm-hmm. as they're having a boys weekend down in Atlanta. So shout out to those guys. But we can wax poetic. I can I, I can wax poetic about Lyra, which, I've, again, if I could ever meet him, that'd be awesome. But Carl Skian, we can – and I know you has some sort of anal- – like he brought up the eight, the Tigers 1981 closer that a couple weeks ago that everybody was like, oh, my God, and – we could all do that. But I asked my son, I asked my son the other day, just because we're doing the podcast. So I go, hey, Matthew, can you name three tigers for me? Three tigers. Mm. Couldn't do it. Wow. He, he goes, my daughter could name seven or eight tigers. She probably might not be able to name seven or eight more MLB players. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's fine. <laughs> but see, yeah. you, it goes back to what Chris is saying about the local angle. Yeah. You're going to continue to alienate fans with this lockout nonsense because in reality there's going to something to find the void but if people love baseball they'll come back and there's a certain younger generation and there, somebody i took i talked to on twitter who is 22 years old and she's a sports manager or sports management that's her major and she talks to football players and she said that the only person they could name was miguel cabrera and they don't really have that kind of discussion for baseball but we saw this over the summer, Chris, we saw that younger generation at the, the ball games that were under 25 that really get into it. Then I think there's like a certain between our age group, Chris. I don't know, there's a slight drop off, but the point is fix it, make games even streamier. Well, like again, the blackout that, that's the part that I don't understand is the blackout rules. And and you, or you, you can't watch five, te- five teams, six, six, sorry, six teams. <laughs> and there's no baseball in Iowa. There's no major league <laughs> baseball. That it makes no sense. None. Never has. And, and never keep, will either. And so and they keep saying they're going to fix it, and they never even bull. They bull. Never, they, it. Yeah. So that's why, in this way, this lockout's frustrating because there's more issues just than the owners just trying to get money, and also trying to stick it to the players. Because let's face it, that's what they're trying to do. It's just they have to start making some sort of the, the film room idea is good, but make more leeway, make some more interesting, you know, interesting things. By the way, have you been to the film room since the lockout? No. Yeah. There's six oh, videos oh, there and it's all like, it, it's all discussing stuff. They, they don't have players anywhere. Players don't exist anymore. That's why I was able to put together that Javier Baez, his, his 10 longest home runs. I had to use some nefarious methods to do that because <laughs> you can't find the videos online anymore. Or at least on the film room. Oh, what the? It's here's an interview with Bob Costas. Oh it's, uh, man! Yeah, it's one of the like the corniest, and I understand like there are theoretically legal reasons for it and all that stuff, but it does it just feels so lame. It, they, they were like they were ready to to remove all player images and videos and all that stuff, like at the drop of a hat. It was. Yep, they pressed that button overnight. Boom. Yeah, it was. They were definitely ready to do that. There you go. Exciting. Hey. Yeah, some Hall of Fame stuff. That's fun. Yeah, you know what? Uh, let's not, that's, okay. that's three times as many videos as there were the other night. So there's nothing wrong. There's 
let me let me clear something up too. Tony Olivia Olivia. Yeah, thank you. Tony Oliva. Oliva. Gosh darn it. All right. Congratulations to him and Michigan native, Holland native Jim Cat, who pitched quite a long time, but then Dick Allen didn't get in. And was it the Mina Minosa didn't get in either? And that's I thought Minosa got in. Oh, did oh, did he get in? He's in. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Then still sucks about Dick Allen who passed away a couple of years ago and he's not getting in, but it's, this is, this is fine, but it's also, it is weird when you go to the rosters and I, this is something I noticed it when we were, when I woke up the other morning, I woke up the, the first day it happened. I was like, Oh, okay. Let's see how the rosters look. Coaches. <laughs> yeah. Just. Yeah, they they all have – you can't show their faces. It is just all very silly and, and feels childish. Yeah. Like you I said, I understand – Well, I understand that, that there are – like they don't want to – theoretically, the players could sue them or whatever for profiting uh, or off their images and things like that. But it just it feels very silly. Like I'm taking my ball and going, huh? Yeah. I don't know. And like we were saying, man, so I there have been periods in my life – like the early 90s, I got way into hockey – and then throughout most of the late 90s and early 2000s, I was into hockey because the Red Wings were incredibly good. And then there were two work stoppages within a five-year span, I think. And I was like, I, I don't care enough to, like, you go through this. And then the Red Wings got really bad. Yeah. And that's like uh, having bad baseball teams for a long time is a great way to lose fans, too. And I've just now started getting back to the Red Wings. And I could, like, last year before, I couldn't name three players on the team, maybe a, a two or three. But now they've got two really exciting young rookies, maybe three if you count the goaltender. And Dylan Larkin looks like a good young captain. They look like a fun team, and suddenly I care again. And it's not that I'm a huge hockey fan. I don't know about any other hockey teams, but it's a local team that's got good, young, exciting players. And so that's a good way to to get my attention. And I think there's probably a fair amount of people like that with baseball as well. Maybe somebody who is like us to hockey, hardcore hockey fans, and will gradually occasionally t- pay attention to baseball but now that we might see riley green and spitzer torkelson and you got to kill badu and casey mize and Tarek scoople hey this is a fun young team i'm gonna start watching yeah i don't know it hurts it hurts if they're gonna stay locked out that's for sure yeah there's no and we've been able to check out michigan winning the big 10 championship last week and there's been some really oh. Cool developments. Uh, actually, and even the, the Pistons have been an interesting state because. <laughs> yeah, n- not to interrupt you. Uh, a couple of things. First of all, uh, apparently Rutgers beat number one Purdue tonight. Whoa, uh, really? In college basketball. But we often compared last year's Pistons team sucked, but they were still really fun to watch because they had a bunch of young players and they were in a lot of tight games. Okay. And, and and our buddy Mark Gorash said last year's Pistons, he had a really great line about it. He said last year's Pistons team was super fun to watch. And they went out and they drafted Cade Cunningham, who was super fun to watch. And this year, they're absolutely horrible to watch as a team. For, and it's true. For whatever, they're the worst team in, in the NBA right now. And I had this sneaking feeling that something might happen with the Tigers this year, kind of like that. With all the young players we're getting excited about last year, it's entirely possible that they could all regress a little bit or just stagnate for a year. It happens in baseball. There's not always a linear progression right to the championship. And, and it wouldn't shock me if the Tigers actually win fewer games in 2022 than they do than they did last year mm-hmm. while still being possibly a better team. Yeah. And, and I don't understand why this, it's the idea of suggesting getting another outfield is just totally 100%. There's a lot of fans out there. No, we have enough outfielders. 
And you got that question from Night Owl right there. We can touch on it if you want. Yeah, go ahead. He said, yeah, Night Owl, 1978. He said, hey there, guys. So who do we sign when the lockout is over? Now, we've discussed this a little bit in previous episodes, but one of the things that, that was interesting is Dan Samborski's Zips projections came out today on Fangraphs. And uh, there's a bunch of cool stuff. You know, Dan's great. He does fun writing and, and all that stuff. The projections are usually fun. And he was saying that, that the offense looks surprisingly strong next year and the pitching looks solid. But when you get to the bullpen, it's an, uh, it's a disaster, basically, is what his projections say. And I think we all suspect they're going to get one more starter, whether it's a somebody who's worth a, a multi-year contract. Probably not. But we've discussed many times like a Willie Peralta type. But I do also think that they're going to try to add a bullpen arm. I know, Rogelio, you've often talked about going out and getting a lefty reliever, so I don't know if there's anybody. You had some names in mind, didn't you? Yeah, and let me go back to my list here for a second. There's In terms of left-handed relievers that are out there, it's they're going to probably look for somebody, and we've, we've talked to a few folks that have indicated that too, but because they need somebody to complement Soto, because if you look at it this way, in a sense that, Gregory Soto is your you know typical power. He's a power arm, so perhaps you want somebody to complement that. And a couple of the names that I, in terms of even trying to give them like a, perhaps just to uh, take a flyer on, and there is the market's kind of just eh at the moment with that. But there is somebody's going to bring up Drew Smiley because everybody always talks about that. But I was referring to the likes of somebody like I'm trying to draw a blank. Oh yeah, no, so I have it right here. There is the likes of why am I okay? So sorry, the screen. No, it's just my screen really froze here for a minute. So you can bring in they can make, they can make a trade for somebody. I know there's a name that's been coming up quite a bit. On the Andrew Chafin. Side. Yes, Chafin. That's what it was. Thank you. I didn't. I wasn't suggesting that. I'm not gonna take credit for that, but I'm gonna. Yeah. As you look, go ahead, Chris. As you well, go ahead. yeah, Chafin might be one of the. Relievers are so up and down. You never know. The best left-handed reliever on the market left next season, who was a free agent this year, is probably somebody we, we can't think of. <laughs> but, yeah, Chafin has been one of the most consistent pitchers. I think he has thrown more innings than any other reliever in baseball over the last four seasons. Now, whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. But, yeah, yeah he would definitely, at least theoretically, strengthen the bullpen. And there's some hard throwers out there. I think Jake Diekman. Yeah, he's out uh, there. He's available. Sean Doolittle's out there. The other name I'll suggest is Brad Hand because maybe they can bring him in the form again, again for the third time. This for the third time I've done this in the last five years. Joe Smith's a free agent again. He's a right-handed though. But anyway, Andrew Miller. But we talked about this. I like Colin McHugh. Colin McHugh. Yeah, that's a good one too. I like that one. That would be yeah. a good one. I don't yeah, care I, if he's right. I don't care if they yeah. get a righty or lefty. I could care less. For I sure, yeah. Did. And I really liked what I liked too was Brooks Raley. I think it's the same as, but I think yeah, he, but he, he went to He's Tampa, Tampa, right? Tampa. Yeah. One of my yeah. favorite. I wanted the Tigers to draft him. I was on him that year. He was a two-way player at Texas A&M. That guy could hit too, mm-hmm. and I was a big fan. I kind of lost track of him. One day I showed up at Principal Park here in Des Moines, and I'm in about the fourth inning, and all of a sudden I realized he's pitching. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never yeah. forget that. He's a good pitcher. Yeah, that's not to switch subjects, but we, we touched on the, the minor league Rule 5 draft, minor league portion of the Rule yeah. 5 draft, and the first guy the Tigers took was a converted outfielder 
who just happens to be able to throw 100. Sometimes those two-way players, they can surprise you. Yep. Yeah, speaking well, of that. that I, I hope we'll get back to our, our question from the listener. They should add wherever they can. They need premium talent, and there's no excuse not to. Where their payroll is, they can afford any player on the market right now. Mm-hmm. And I even mean Correa, really. I know they won't do it. That's pie in the sky. But there's really no one they can't afford. Because here's the thing, and others have said it. We probably said it here. I'll say it now. We don't need to protect Mike or Chris Illich's money. Okay? <laughs> yeah. These are very rich people. If they lose $15 million this year, they don't care. It's not a big deal. They can afford it. The, the baseball owners do well. <laughs> if they want to win, they can bring in whoever they want, really. Here's uh, some slow-mo. If you're watching this on YouTube, we got some slow-mo going on in for CL's low A team. and He's only 22 years old, so he's got some time. That fastball is sitting up to 96, 97. That's a – there you go. That looks like it. Yep. Good grip there. Yeah, I mean, he – the odds of him ever reaching the majors are very slim. Right. This is, this is a guy who – essentially, the, the minor league portion of the Rule 5 draft, I believe it works – like to be eligible for it, it's the same idea as the major league portion. You have to have been in the system for a certain number of years. But in this one, the major league portion, the team basically has to think you're one of the top 40 players in the organization or thinks that you're far enough away that nobody will realistically add you to the major league roster because you'd have to stay there all year. Uh, that's basically why we think the Twins left Badu unprotected. They thought no team would, you know. Yeah use their pick on a guy who'd barely played in high a jokes on you, Minnesota. It's still one of the, one of the better, even if Badu never does anything ever again, that's still one of the better rule five picks of the last 20 years. So good on the tigers there, but yeah, in the minor league portion, you don't have to worry about like returning the player. So to to get taken in the minor league portion of the rule five draft, you have to not be on the major league 40 man roster and not be on the 38-man roster, AAA roster, the team put out there. So generally speaking, that organization doesn't think that you're one of their best 78 players. (laughs) So it's pretty rare for for guys taken in the minor league portion to reach the majors even, although it does happen. Justin Bohr famously did it a couple years ago, I think, for the Marlins, had a couple pretty good years. And there was a kid last year who ended up going to pitch in another bullpen for Arizona, Tyler something. Ended up being pretty solid. So, you he know, Elvis Alvarado. No hitter, is he? Uh, he might have been. I think he. I think he might have been. <laughs> yeah, Nick Kuzza, by the way, who has a really cool Instagram. The shoot, that was a nice pitch. That has his kind of story and how he, he. There's one video he posted where he's showing he's striking out first round guys, and he's pretty confident. He's worked on his game quite a bit. Both both Elvis and Nick have one thing in common, and they that means they both have high walk rates and but they have two pitches that can work, the tigers can definitely work with and so that again i know that during the lockout we might analyze this a little more than normal but still if you look at the grand scheme of things chris and we talked about this last year the tigers didn't really have a lot of bullpen depth across the minor leagues well that's a nice pitch in there, yeah the, the kid they got from san diego it, it would not shock me if he makes the majors uh, yeah. even this year at some point it's a good arm and He's decent stats. Like you said, he walked a ton of guys, but he also, his ERA was respectable in double A AA and triple A, I believe. And uh, he struck out a lot of people. So 
You never know. Guys with live arms, you, you take a chance on them. I, yeah, they're, they're not sick. Yeah. The, if you throw hard, you're going to get chances. It's kind of, it's, you throw hard, you're basically like M. Night Shyamalan or whatever. Like he made a movie chances? that, yeah, he made one movie that made just an absolute ton of money. Yeah. Maybe he's not the best example because he's made, you know, a couple other movies that made money. What about Carson, like, Ful- Carson Fulmer who got drafted by the Dodgers? Is that, is yeah, that's that great. He, Carson Fulmer has been given, I mean, he was a top 10 pick by the White Sox, was no good. He's moved around. He was on the Tigers briefly. We saw him in the minors last year with the Reds. He just keeps getting chances because he could still throw fairly hard. He's got a decent splitter, I think. But yeah, it's, if you've got a good arm, they're going to keep. Somebody's going to keep trying. And we know with bullpen guys, you never know. Like one of the arms I was just looking at, I was looking at Fangraphs list of relief prospect or, or available relievers. Ryan Tapera, the White Sox. He's what? He's like thirty-four. Let's see yeah. how old is he? Yeah, thirty-four. At age thirty-three, just had the best season of his career by far and he's out there you never know maybe one of these guys they go out and grab turns into something it's you take a gamble on the arm and hope you could figure out the rest yeah there's a certain thing that i think what the tigers have in place right now in terms of organ for among their organizational pitching philosophies i think we're going to see more of that this year and, and another, the tigers hired another la dodger gentleman Chris, I forgot. His name yeah, ago. it's hard to keep track of them all. And, and we don't really know exactly what his role is going to be. He's basically coached at every level over the last 10, 15 years and was with the Dodgers since, what, 2017? Sounds right. Yeah. But yeah, they are really, it's not unlike what in other sports, the New England Patriots have all sorts of success. So everyone keeps taking their coaches and their all that stuff it never works. But it's what is imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that the Dodgers are the best player development drafting development organization in baseball. So the Tigers are trying to copy them and trying to get guys who know what they do. So I can't complain about that. We'll see how it works in the next few years. But every time they hire somebody from the Dodgers, you go, hey, smart hire. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it works for me. <laughs> yeah. And again, it's one of those things where I firmly believe that if you take what you can in terms of what are good organizations doing? What is their formula? Take some of that formula and, and make it in your own. Make it in your own tiger potion or whatever the case may be. So delicious. Well, I, I will <laughs> say I don't know. We were touching on this. We got another question from Deadly Ninja Bees. I don't know if you saw that. Oh no, I didn't see that. It's touching on what we were talking about. So I'll just I'll throw it out there. He said that I see the Rule Five picks are both both fastball slider guys. Seems the Tigers have drafted a ton of pitchers lately that are known for the slider. Is that an organizational trend or coincidence? I like to think it's an organizational trend. I don't know about you, Uper, but I, I look at it as, look, for example, last year with Tyler Alexander, they maximized his best pitch, his cut fastball, and then someone else to complement that. So it could be a philosophy change where they are looking at, okay, your changeup gets lit up. Just throw these two pitches, and that's it, and not worry about a third pitch. Yeah, it keeps happening so much. It's hard to believe it's a coincidence. That's where I will be a little bit contradictory here. Go for it. It just seems to me, specifically talking about the Rule 5 guys, I basically, for the last 15 years, I feel like the Tigers have only targeted relievers who throw hard and have inconsistent sliders they can't locate. It just seemed like the 2008 draft that everybody criticized, it was Ryan Perry and Cody Satterwhite and all those guys and mm-hmm. all, all the relievers they brought up. Al Albuquerque had a, a ridiculous slider that worked, and it was the... the platonic ideal of, of that type of pitcher, but like Brian Villarreal and Lester Oliveros and Jose Ortega 
and all these dudes who you threw in the mid nineties and, and had a slider that would occasionally look good, but most of the time just hung over the middle of the plate. I just, I don't know if it's anything new, but I, I will say that in general sliders, like slider usage across baseball has gone up. So if it's a coincidence, it, that might be why it's just sliders have become the go-to secondary offering. And it's partially, uh, it's supposedly it's easier to throw them than it is a, a curveball, at least easier to locate. And uh, also they happen to be more effective. <laughs> it's yeah. the more effective break. Also, everybody throws them now. So, you know, if I had to guess, I, I would not put it past the Tigers at all at this point. I'm comfortable en- enough now with Federer and, and what they're doing there to say, hey, they might have some ideas and some ways to work on this. But I think at this point, it's probably just they're going after guys who throw hard and the guys who throw hard tend to have a slider rather than a curve. Yeah, and wasn't it for a while, too? I remember the slider being a no-no pitch early in the 90s because so many people had elbow problems. Jose Rio comes to mind of the Reds, the former starter. Who That's who I think of off the top of my head. And there's a couple others who had elbow problems. But now it seems like the slider's come full circle. Uh, yeah, and you could argue that in the early 2000s, even all the way up to 2010, that sinker slider was the way to go. That was the kind of the the prototype you wanted a Brandon Webb power sinker slider combination to get ground balls and strikeouts. And then in over the last, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years, it was more like the high four seam and, and 12, six curveball or whatever. But I, I don't know. I just think that sliders, it, like I said, it, it one thing they found with breaking balls is, is that they're far more effective when they're harder. So the, the harder breaking ball you can throw, the better. And we got guys throwing 93 mile an hour sliders. Now I think we saw Fulmer do that a couple of times this year. So Lance McCullers. Yeah. McCullers with the, yeah, he's got a nasty, is that, is that a knuckle curve or a slider? I, either way, it's a hard breaking ball that people hate to face and Jacob deGrom just throw hard and get some K's. And that's what, speaking of getting K's, the we'll talk about the 1967 Tigers because the 1967 Tigers as we're going to breeze through this a little quickly because a, this is a team that somebody on Twitter is like, Oh man, no, that's heartbreaking. <laughs> yes, it is very heartbreaking. The 1967 Tigers play one ninety one games. They finished second behind Boston. And one of the best pennant races of all time is between them. In terms of who was in that division, or it was one league at the time. One league. Huh? It, yeah. One league. And it was the Tigers, Minnesota, and Boston, even the Reds, White Sox, rather, were floating around a little bit until yep. towards the end. But it was it came down the last weekend of the, the season for all these teams, and it this is a team that just really, in, in all reality, look at it on paper. It's a lot of it's a carbon copy of what was going on then. And by the way, there's this is the only season, by the way, they had a tie. Ninety-seven. They were. They finished ninety-one, seventy-one, and one. You. Do you know why there was a tie? I couldn't remember. I was trying to look for that earlier. No, I do not. There was a tie. Oh yeah. What? Yeah. All right. Let me look at. Uh... While you look at that, though, let's let's talk about this team, Uper. And this is a rotation that would be the pretty much would year, and also you would see a future MVP or Cy Young Award winner, Mike Marshall. Who was from Michigan? Who went to Michigan State, and also he taught like pitching mechanics, I believe, too, as well. But this yep. is a team. Is that correct? There, yeah, Adrian, Michigan, I think. Yep, Mike Marshall. That's right. And John Hiller, of course, a young John Hiller, 
was on this oh. team, but it's really the workhorses of the staff was everybody talks about Danny McLean and Mickey Lolich, but it was Earl Wilson who won 22 games for the Tigers that season. And he's a guy, he was one of the first free agents, excuse me, one of the first players to ever get endorsed for sponsorships. Fun fact there about mm. Earl Wilson. Mm. And he was a workhorse and it was a guy who really who came over from Boston a few years earlier and provided to be a, a stable force in rotation. Yeah, it, it's. I was looking. I think they had 45 complete games just between the four of them. They just did the bulk of the work. I think they're all between about 210 and, or maybe 205 and 265 innings, all four starting pitchers. And then the guy who made eight starts was Johnny Padres, the legend from the Brooklyn Dodgers, who was playing out the string. I think he had about a, about a 3.80 RA in eight starts. So that was. Officer, go ahead. I, I was really struck that bullpen. So interesting. You had John Hiller in his rookie year, Mike Marshall in his rookie year, and Pat Dobson would go on to win 20 games for the Orioles a few years later and 19 for the Yankees. All of them as rookies, all pitching about 60-something innings. And you know, it's just interesting. They were all excellent pitchers as rookies in the bullpen. You wonder if... In the modern day, if, if, if a modern day manager had parachuted in <laughs> to, to, to manage that team and push those guys a little farther, because they didn't pitch that much compared to what bullpen usage was in, the, in those days. A lot of relief pitchers went 100 innings. I wonder if they win that division, or excuse me, win the pennant. <laughs> if they had pushed those high-performing rookies a little further and taken a few innings away from Joe Sparma who was probably their weakest starter. Yeah. It was interesting when I was looking back and I was generally speaking, uh, I'm not much for baseball history, particularly if it happened before I was born, I just go, ah, whatever. Uh, <laughs> and I of course know about the 1968 tigers cause you have to, but I wasn't really aware of the 67 club. I think I knew that they were a good team, but I wasn't aware of the ins and outs of the team, the season. And just looking back, it looks like one of the best Tigers offenses in, in franchise history. They led all of, to fan graphs and baseball reference, they led all of baseball in war by a significant amount, like three to five war. And they came, they were third in all of baseball in home runs with 152 as a team. There were, I looked, there were 33 players in all of baseball that year who hit at least 19 home runs and the Tigers had five of them. <laughs> number one in on-base percentage, number one in weighted runs created plus. But what struck me was, uh, you know, this was still an era of pitching dominance. So while we, we, we talk about Earl Wilson and having been the ace of the staff, he was. He went 22-11 and 11 in 38 starts. Back then they would start every four days. And his 3-2-7 year, that sounds really good. <laughs> but by ERA plus, it was 100. Yeah. It, it was exactly average. And I, I looked at it today. So in 2021, a, a 327 ERA would be like an ERA plus of 125 to 130, basically above average, like Charlie Morton this year. You'd be uh, a wealthy man. Yeah, but back then, <laughs> that was garbage. So when you look at the second most innings were Denny McLean and Joe Sparma was third most, but their ERAs were 379 and 376, were, which were like effectively trash back then. <laughs> it's the equivalent of a 5-2 ERA this year. It still looks good, but but they were really, I think the pitching, the starting pitching is what held them back that year. Their best pitcher by war was Mickey Lolich, 
with a 307 ERA, which again, sounds awesome, but was really only like an ERA plus of 110. Yeah, it, it seems like that was for, for as good as the pitching looked. It was just, and they were a young staff. What, what Wilson was a veteran at that point, but McLean was 23, Sparman was 25, Lolich was 26. It just seemed like they, they had to get beat up a little bit before they figured it out the next year. Yeah. And the lineup is also very much a lineup of its time. You mentioned they had the great hitters, Freehand and K-Line and so on. But then they had the automatic outs. They automatic out at short, automatic out at center field, pretty soft out at third base. <laughs> you know, that, that was pretty typical of the time, too. A lot of lineups were constructed that way. When you look at Ray Euler and Mickey Stanley. Yeah, yeah, and Don Wirt, like it was. I was looking at that, too. Yeah, they had basically six uh, hitters in their their regular lineup who were either good or great. And mm-hmm. then they had three complete down where it was close to average. He had two fifty with six home runs at third base. It's funny to say that's close to average, but Euler and Stanley were like you said, automatic outs. They hit two ten, but they were great defenders and Wirt was a great defender too. So it was like the stars and scrubs model, yeah. except the, the scrubs were elite defenders basically. But yeah, it was Al K lines, his last great season. He still played. He had a couple of good solid seasons, but that year he hit, what he hit? 308 with 22 home runs, I want to say. 25, 25 home runs. 25 home runs, yeah. And, and only 130 games. And it, it was like, it was a seven-war season for him, which ordinarily would have been like MVP level consideration. But as, <laughs> as you mentioned, Raj, yeah, yeah Carl Yastrzemski just went absolutely bonkers that year and, and ran yeah. away with it. What's a fun, what's interesting about that Boston team too, in terms of war, which stands out. This is why he was a one-man army, because the neck in terms of the next person closest to war behind Carl Yastrzemski was George Scott at 4.4. And then they had uh, Rico Petroselli. Petroselli, yeah. yep. And then Tony, yep, yep, who got hit in the eye, I believe. That's what yep. it was. Tony C, yep. Yeah, Tony C. And he was at 3.7. So it was a, just in terms of, you talk about his numbers in September and what he was able to do. First and foremost, it's something that you, I don't know if you will ever see again, because we've seen guys carry teams, don't get me wrong, but not like Yastrzemski did in 67. You look at that, and Hawk Harrelson's talked about it numerous times, but who bats the last month of the season? 417, 504, <laughs> 760, and puts OPS of over 1,000, an OPS plus of, what was it the, I'm sorry, the, this is the, T, uh, the OPS plus of 143. <laughs> 143. That's a kind of he was just a madman, and just he was a he went he didn't miss a single game. He missed only he didn't miss a single game. He pinched it. Actually, I'm sorry, he started almost every game. He did pitch it a couple times, but he was just a guy out of third, a bad in third was just automatic. 43 home runs, 119 RBIs. And this is a time where 40 home run seasons weren't like a normal thing. No, and just he was a beast. And that was, in addition to that, the, the stat, Boston staff, compared to speaking to the Tigers, they had a couple guys on that staff that weren't exactly household names, but they were, that was under manager Dick Williams, who the Tigers would encounter again many years later. But you had Jim Lomberg, who was, who was the Boston's ace, but in terms of numbers and, and they didn't have any, like, in terms of balance rotation, it was him and that was it. Lee Strange was 8 and 10. Of course, you see his ERA is 2.77, but his ERA plus is 127. But the Tigers had overcome that. And then there was another name on there. You brought to get a crack uh, laugh out loud. 
mm-hmm. is Sparky Lyle, who's known more for the Yankees, but he was in that Boston bullpen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely a great pitcher. That guy was money. Yeah, we have a question about Jackson Joe. We can. Yeah. You want to talk that, that that now or finish up with the sixty-seven team first? Uh, we can finish up. With, you know, what, let's take the question now, and I think we'll wrap okay. up the, after that. So yeah, uh, Night Owl seventy-eight asked us uh, another question. Great podcast so far, fellas. Thank you very much. Thank you. What is the ceiling on Jackson Job? That would be Detroit's first round pick last year, third overall. And what is his ETA to get to the majors? Thanks in advance. I don't know. What do you guys think? We're in the process right now of doing our. Tigers top 20 prospects over at Motor City Bengals. We've had five people put their top 20s together. And I like the way we do that because all five of us have some like major outliers. And mm-hmm. as we should, we're not going to be all thinking the same. But when you put us all together, we end up with a pretty solid list, I think, that makes a lot of sense. And we have Job, unless we get another person to join that. Right now, Job, is we have is the fourth prospect in the system, fourth best. Really? Oh. Yeah, I had him. I am. Uh, I didn't have him as high. Because only because I know everybody else did, but I haven't seen him pitch, and I can't. To me, look, it, it, I understand this is all about projection. I get it, and I understand that. But I had a wise man tell me once that unless you see it, I just. And same thing with Checo. Although his numbers yeah. indicate, I'm not going to be a box score warrior because it's hard to do that. But his strikeout numbers early on didn't show anything. But again, I have to see him in person to even consider that. So some of those players are hard to, for me at least, to rank is how they are. I just got to see them and then put it together. And so mm-hmm. as far as the GTA goes, I'm going to say 2024. And that's just because if that's what two years from now, if he does well, it depends on what they start him. If the Tigers start him in high A, that's a good sign. If they start him at West Michigan, if they start him at or low A, and then he eventually makes his way to high A through the same season, that's a good sign too. But if he spends the whole season in low A his first year, I'm not going to – I'll go 2025, but it really depends on – it really depends on where you – stick to 2024. I think I put out – is he going to be on the Matt Manning track? Or is it, is it going to be accelerated from that? That's going to be really be up to him most likely. I would like to think 2024 is doable. Mm-hmm. Makes sense yeah. to me. He's born in 2002. That would be him being early part of the season. He would be 21. Latter part, he would be 22. That would be, I think, either way would be pretty quick. I don't know. It's just so hard. And to, to Roger, to your point, it's really hard. We hear all these spectacular things about him from all the draft reports and, and things like that. This fastball that sits in the mid low to mid 90s can touch the upper 90s this hellacious slider that supposedly could be one of the best pitches in major league baseball right now and you got a change up that could be a plus pitch it, it all feels a bit much for any amateur player it's it and then when he doesn't go out and pitch after getting drafted it's not his fault his season was shut down and they didn't want to ramp him back up and then shut him down again but he also wasn't at instructs so we've yet to see him throw a pitch in any capacity for the Tigers. And who knows? You'll hear things the Tigers say. Some Tigers that scouts thought he was more advanced than Josh Beckett at the same age. Josh Beckett was, what, the second overall pick in 97, 98, something like that, and, and maybe 99 or 2000, and, and was dominating in the postseason by 2003. Again, that, that all feels like a bit much. But if what they're saying about his true talent is true, then you're talking about a guy with legitimate number one starter ceiling 
I would never put a likelihood on that on, on anybody like that. There's I'm one of those people who who views thinks there's only a handful of really true aces in baseball at any one time. Mm-hmm. And that's what we thought. Like you said, you we, was the Matt Manning. We, we Matt Manning has everything, or at least we thought he had everything to be a potential frontline starter. And then he got to Triple A, and it was you know, run into a brick wall. And I'd love to say that Jackson Job's a future number two starter, but I have no idea. He could, he might, and and I do have an article about this coming out relatively soon. He might flame out. He might become a bullpen guy. He could be a back end starter. He could be a frontline starter. He could. There's a thousand different things that could happen. Could get hurt. So Rick Porcello was one of the fastest moving pitchers in recent history for a, a draft pick. The Tigers drafted him, what, 27th overall. He didn't pitch the year he signed. Went out the next year, skipped right over low A, pitched a full season in a high A, and then yeah. skipped over double A and triple A and went right to the majors and basically never left. He went back down to triple A for a handful of starts, I think, in his second season. Yep. But that's like the far extreme for one pitcher and on the other end is for a high school arm it's guys like matt manning and, and Bo burrows where they kind of scrape their way through the minors and eventually make it and, and then you don't know so i don't know I, I it's nice to dream about him being an awesome pitcher but it's just way too soon especially yeah like i said i would love to see how he does against some minor league talent and, and go from there but, It'll be interesting with the new CBA. How quick are they going to progress to free agency and all that kind of stuff? How quickly do you want to get someone into the majors? That that could play into it too. You never know. Yeah, there's yeah, a lot. There's true. a lot of different aspects of that because he'll be. Yeah, he's going to be almost 20 when he's starting to pitch next year. When his birthday's in July, so he'll be 19 for a few months and then turn 20 in his first year of pro pitching. But so yeah, that's a good question. So we haven't talked about Jack and Job in a while, so that's fun to talk about. I did want to. I know we want to wrap it up, but there were a couple other things in 67 that I, I thought were interesting. Yeah, go for it. And I, I looked it up so that the tie was actually against the Twins in in June, the middle of June. It was a 5-5 game that got it was tied at in the ninth, and then rain ended the game, and they never made it up. I, assuming had they ended up tied – at the end of the season with the Twins and the Red Sox, I imagine they would have gone out and tried to finish that game. Or I, I, I don't know. I don't know when it was declared a tie, but that's odd. And I was telling you guys before, I didn't know this until doing research before the show, but the Tigers actually, in a doubleheader on April 30th in 1967, they beat the Orioles 2-1 to one, despite being no hit. <laughs> and I was looking at the details of that game. It's, it's just funny. The Baltimore starter was Steve Barber, who ended up, I think, he went eight and two-thirds innings and walked ten guys with three strikeouts. This sort of thing you don't see anymore. But yeah, he went into the ninth without having, he didn't allow a hit, but he walked Norm Cash and Ray Euler to start the inning. And then Tigers starting pitcher Earl Wilson, who was also pitching into the ninth, sacrificed those guys over to second and third. One out in the eighth or the ninth with two minute scoring position. But they left the starter in there and he got Willie Horton to pop out, but then threw a wild pitch to tie the game. And so they brought in a relief and walked, and then he walked. Uh, Mickey Stanley. So you're talking, we talked about the the three empty bats in the lineup. He walked two of them. So he was clearly (laughs) running on fumes. They brought in a reliever who gave up a ground ball to shortstop that uh, ended the inning, but the the shortstop threw it to the second baseman, whose name was Woody Held, by the way. How about that name? And he he (laughs) he dropped the ball, but the reliever got K-line to to, uh, ground out the next, next bat. So no hits, but two runs scored. And then Fred Gladding closed out the inning. The Tigers won two to one, despite not getting a hit. So I thought that was cool. My other note from that team 
go back to Mike Marshall quick. His rookie year, he had 10 saves. He had a 198 ERA. They lose him that winter in the expansion draft to the Seattle Pilots, mm. the 55th pick or something in the expansion draft. Could you imagine today if, if the Tigers lost a rookie with a 198 ERA who looked like a future fireballing closer and lose him to an expansion team? Yeah, it's, I mean, it'd be interesting to know what the rules were, how many people they could protect, and how a guy like him got away. Because he obviously he would go on to be one of the best relievers of the seventies. Yeah, I, I do wonder if they just didn't really value relievers back then, yeah. to the point where. But did he did he did he become a starter at some point too, or was he just mostly a bullpen guy? I'm sure he started some at times, but he was mostly a. He's the guy who had the record for uh, 106 appearances one year when he was with the Dodgers. Oh. You know? yep. Yeah. What I found interesting too about the end of the season was how they got screwed by the Angels, which seems to be a, a theme with the Tigers throughout history. <laughs> the California Angels were one of the worst teams in the American League at the time, but they went out there and they came back after a game, in a, in the second game of a doubleheader where the Tigers were up convincingly, and, and they came back and won 8-6, to six, and that kind of really broke back a little bit for the, for the Tigers. And for game two of that, it was just in terms of what they were able to do on the last day of the regular season, though, was that, I mean, of course, this is a controversial what happened here on September 18th when Danny McClain reported that he had severely injured his two toes and he fell asleep at home and he stubbed his toes when he got up to deal with raccoons. And <laughs> it, this is according to Sabre, too. There's a good story on this on Sabre. He changed his story a few times, but the injury almost shut him down for two weeks. So he, Mayo Smith had no choice but to start him because the rest of that rotation was on fumes, honestly. And so if you look at some of the numbers, but yeah, imagine if he was healthy, maybe it could have been differently. But also, Mayo Smith in that lineup had to do a lot of platooning. You saw Trubisky, who was the Tigers bench coach later on, or uh, third baseman, third base coach, right? Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then they between Northrop and Stanley split time at center. Mail did a hell of a job with what was given to him. As you guys were talking about the guaranteed outs and what have you, and the home run power really it was the kind of the beginning of that three run like the was it Earl Weaver say just the three run homer philosophy, but not perhaps with the Tigers need a little more boppers in the lineup, but like just well they had, they had Eddie Matthews there too. Yeah, I mean, kind of at the tail end of a great career, and uh, he had a nice season. So it, it, it's quite a lineup. You can see why it portended that, that good things are coming in 68. We mentioned that the Angels, I got I have to say it because my hometown, Calumet, Michigan, pitching for the Angels that weekend, got a save in one of the games, a guy named George Brunette. He was a, an MLB baseball vagabond, pitched everywhere in Mexico, Japan, uh, all over the majors. He started a lot of games that year for the Angels. And the Tigers... Knocked him out of one game. He came back the next day and pitched the ninth. Uh, and that was a you know big win for the Angels and it hurt the Tigers quite a bit. He pitched against my father often up there. My dad was a good pitcher on the amateur level. And they squared off many times when they were kids. I heard a lot of those stories. So George Brunette was pretty cool. Also holds a pretty cool record. Most jerseys numbers in uh, MLB history. Hmm. He's tied. He had 15 different numbers over his career. Oh, 
just because like that's, yeah, that, I mean, that's, I didn't, that's a pretty cool stat I, yeah i didn't know who would keep track of that that's fun um <laughs> Yeah, as I said, I, I'm not much of a student of baseball history, it, it, but I know like the, the most of the big names from like the big names, the guys who were in statues and so forth. But I was struck by, first of all, K-Line had that great season. Bill Freehan had another excellent season, finished third in the MVP voting in 1967. You know, imagine a, a catcher playing 155 games, hitting 282 with 20 homers. And Norm Cash I'd heard of, and Willie Horton, of course, we know. He famously, in 67, went out in the middle of the, the riot in his uniform and stood on his car trying to get people to stop rioting. He couldn't. Nobody could. It's not his fault. Uh, it was, what, the deadliest riot in, in American history until the L.A. riots in 92. But but one, I, I have to admit, I kind of being ignorant about how good of a player Dick McAuliffe was. Mm. Um, and He's a name I've heard of before, but I was looking. So so in that 67 season, he hit, he only hit 239. He's very much like a modern player looking back at his stats. So he hit 239, but hit 22 home runs and walked 105 times while playing good defense at second base. And so I looked, and, and from 1963 to 1970, you know, an eight-year stretch, Dick McAuliffe put up a, a 119 WRC plus hmm. for uh, hit 136 home runs. He, he averaged 17 home runs and 75 walks a year while hitting 250 and playing good defense. Like that's, it feels almost like Ian Kinsler-ish to me, like a really darn good player for a long time that didn't, I don't know. He, and maybe some people are screaming like, yeah, of course he was good. Or maybe nobody thought he was good because he didn't hit for a high average, but it just struck me as, as, as an under, I don't know, underappreciated player from that era. Maybe there's no question. The baseball card stats rule today. Yeah. Oh. At 239 back then, even up to when I was collecting cards in the seventies, you saw the 239 and like, eh, whatever. No. You know? <laughs> you extend that all the way to the late 90s and early 2000s, really. It wasn't until the last 15, 20 years or so that people started looking beyond that. But, yeah, yeah an impressive player that I didn't really know much about. And one of the takeaway, too, that was like a random fact, the way that was like a Fred Gladding, who would end up going to Houston the following year, was from Flat Rock, Michigan, went to Flat Rock High School. And I think he's the only pitcher for and, and anybody who lives in the Dearborn or Downer area is familiar with Flat Rock. I think he's the only major league pitcher to come out of Flat Rock. So there's another random bloop as uh the Drew <laughs> podcast would do. But yeah that's just the most random that's fact cool. but and it, it, the Tigers it's funny is the tradition of low hitting shortstops will continue until Alan Trammell came along. You had Rail Loller or damn it. It's hard to Ray Orler was also Orler. taken in the expansion draft. I didn't realize he was the fifth overall pick or fifth pick in that expansion draft by the pilots. So they wow. wanted a shortstop who couldn't hit. <laughs> they did well. Yeah, and then, <laughs> then later on, then you had Brickman who was coming up, who came over from the Nationals a couple of years later, and he was same thing, all defense, not a lot of offense. And the Tigers politically speaking. Tom Verizer. Yeah, Verizer. But beforehand, who was the early who won the batting crown in uh, the the Tigers had a bat, uh, shortstop to win a batting crown in I think it was in the fifties. It was no the the one that was part of the, the Rocky. All right, hold on, I'm I'm just scattered. The one who, who was traded game. for Rocky Kala or for was he traded for Norm Cash or Rocky Calavillo? Har- Harvey Keen. Harvey Keen, thank you. Yes, yeah. he was a shortstop, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think no, he I think he was. I believe he was. And yeah, until Alan Trammell came along. But anyway, so was there anything else on this before we get yeah. out here this evening? Just for fun, I was looking at, uh, so 67 would have been the third year of the Major League Baseball draft. 
and the Tigers picked 15th and I'm looking and oh boy teams used to be bad at drafting mm-hmm. their uh their first pick was a guy named Jim Four out of a high school in Missouri who ended up putting up negative 0.06 war in 13 games in his career and uh, that was about it for their <laughs> their draft wow. they drafted eight players made who made the majors for combined negative 0.9 war <laughs> um, yeah, it was tough back then it's hard to scout you just grab a guy who looks good yeah and defense was the order of the day but like i said thanks for listening we appreciate we'll be again we're gonna play about a year from now but depends on the response from our audience so if you guys want us to go back and do another one of these team reviews pick a team in the comment section on our twitter page go to tigers minor league report or ml report or one of our individual Twitter accounts or at Tigers Radio Pod. And if you're watching us on YouTube, same thing. Just leave, leave us a comment, let us know. But uh, otherwise, maybe there's some sort of labor. And <laughs> no, I'm just joking. There's not going to be any changes. It's Christmas time, guys. No one's going to do any work yeah. on Christmas. We may see a minor league signing or two because you can do that. Yeah, I still think the Tigers should address getting a second baseman or another pitcher to the field rotation. So that's yeah, what I somebody randomly asked me on Twitter about who with Chris Taylor gone, who is like the best utility guy option. And Jonathan VR is still out there. He, I, I don't know. He might get a multi-year deal, but I, he's a guy who would, that, that's the one thing about the zips article is, is, is Dan Saborski was saying basically the tigers, like it's not crazy to imagine them challenging the white Sox this year, if things go right. And so they may be, uh, maybe they're, they're trying to find some more depth pieces now. And who knows, maybe they'll be shopping for relievers at the deadline, which will be wild. When's the last time they were actually looking to add at the deadline? Well, it's interesting. The piece I'm writing, I'll tease it a little bit right now. The Tigers, there are basically two teams in the Central trying to win. Right? Yeah. Detroit and, and the White Sox. The other teams really aren't trying to win yet. Yeah. Cleveland, I, hasn't, Cleveland hasn't signed anybody, nor is Kansas City. Nope. But they're going to go bargain bin shopping. That's true. Yeah. That's true. I, I do think that, that the – and you've talked touched on this for sure is that the Royals, their young hitting prospects are as just about as good, if not uh, better, mm-hmm. maybe as good at least as the Tigers young hitting prospects. And so there's going to be some excitement there, but yeah, to your point, they haven't gone out and spent, spend $200 million on free agents. And if the, if they do add playoff spots this year and all of a sudden it's what 40, is it 48% of the teams would make the playoffs. I think almost anybody could sneak into the top 48%. Yeah, that would be a hoot, man. I Anyway, Let me, uh, we, we all can dream, but like uh, I said, probably one more show before the end, of the end of the year, more likely. But like I said, pick your team, whatever topics you want to discuss. I mean, if you guys want to do, do uh, Brown, Castillo, and Uber go to the movies and, and maybe watch a movie streaming, which I we still haven't done that yet. We still haven't done a event on Discord. Did somebody ask that or what? No, it's just. Oh. My wife suggested that. My wife a goes, why don't you watch a baseball movie and everybody like in a chat, like Discord, host on Discord. I'm like, that's a pretty good idea. But I don't mm-hmm. know if there's copyright laws and all that stuff to get into. But either way, we'll talk to you soon. Have a good week, everybody. Good night. That's good.